Hello and welcome to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast, where each week, Pastor Jeff Cranston explores biblical theology that provides practical life applications in an understandable way. Thanks for joining us at the table. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to Kitchen Table Theology. I'm your host, Tiffany Coker. Along with my dad, Pastor Jeff Cranston, we are seeking not only to help you know deep, solid biblical theology, but to know the Word of God and the promises of God that are given to us in His Word, all while holding to solid theological truths in your heart, soul, and mind. And here at Kitchen Table Theology, we are so grateful for our partnership with Columbia International University. For 100 years, CIU has educated people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. They have undergraduate, graduate, and seminary programs, both on campus and convenient online programs that are designed specifically for working adults. There are small class sizes. It's a world-class faculty. So many possibilities for your growth at CIU. You can check all of that out at ciu.edu. Beginning with episode number 143, we have discussed and studied 20 Old and New Testament books now, along with their theological themes. So if you've missed any, we encourage you to go back, give that a listen, and get caught up to where we are today. 20 books. 20. So yeah, we're coming up on a third of the way through the Bible. I didn't realize that. Well, hello again, Kitchen Table Theologians. Thanks for joining us. And just, yeah, with CIU, when this podcast drops this week, this current weekend, they are celebrating their 100th anniversary. So they've been going strong and teaching and training people for ministry since 1923. And I was a part of their graduating class of 60, the 60-year anniversary. So that means I graduated from college 40 years ago. That just does not even (laughs) seem possible. And I don't even, I shouldn't even have said that out loud. But anyway, <laughs> thanks for joining us today. We're going to be looking into the Old Testament book of First Kings. Why don't we go ahead and jump right in? I feel like we had a month off recently. Last week, we were back in the New Testament. So mm-hmm. it's been a minute since we have been in the Old Testament. We might maybe need a quick reminder about where we are in the Old Testament when we come to First Kings. Maybe you could help us out there and fill us in on where we are. Yes. Yeah, sorry, you caught me in mid-drink of my southern, coffee. <laughs> southern pecan coffee. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Context is king, and we've got a few first and second books in the Old Testament, and you know they can run together and be a little confusing sometimes. Well, First Kings, when it opens, it, it's describing the final days of King David. And that's around 971 BC. And First Kings mentions a number of conspiracies surrounding his succession. Now, when David died, that's in chapter two, his son Solomon ascended the throne and he very quickly established himself as a strong and wise, sagacious leader. In the early years of Solomon's reign, we read that Israel experienced sort of its glory days. Their influence, economy, military power enjoyed little opposition. Its neighbors posed no strong military threat, very dissimilar to today. So we read of David's death in chapter 2, and then we read of Solomon's death in chapter 11. 
So his death occurred around 931 BC. Not long after that, the kingdom was divided into northern and southern entities. That would be Israel, the northern group, and Judah, the southern group. So 1 Kings follows the history of this now divided kingdom until the year 853 BC. So that's approximately 120 years, but 1 Kings covers much more than all of that, obviously. And I'm guessing so much takes place in those 120 years, right? (laughs) Uh, Now that we have some context, thank you for that, on where the book sits historically, let's start with who wrote 1 Kings. Do we know who was the author? Well, Kitchen Table Theologian, if you'll recall learning that our books of First and Second Samuel were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible, we, we talked about that, you won't be surprised. It's the same with First and Second Kings. The book of Kings continues the narrative started in Samuel, and the Septuagint separated them into two parts. Hey, hang on right there. Take a quick time out. Remind us again what the Septuagint is. Yep. Okay. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And we derive our English title Kings from Jerome's Vulgate. That was called the Latin Vulgate. That's different from the Septuagint. And the Vulgate's the Latin translation of the Bible. So now that I've confused this with Vulgate and Septuagint, <laughs> you asked who the author is. So on to that. No one knows the author or the authors of First and Second Kings, although as you read Bible commentaries, and as I studied into this a little bit, some people say, well, they think it's Ezra who wrote it. Some say Ezekiel. Some say Jeremiah. But we really don't know. The entire work of First and Second Kings, or the Book of Kings, encompasses a time period of more than 400 years, and several source materials were used to compile the records. Thomas Constable, in his excellent commentary on First Kings, says this, certain clues, such as literary styles, themes woven throughout the book, and the nature of material used point to a single compiler or author rather than multiple compilers or authors. So he goes on to suggest sensibly, I think, that this person assembled the manuscript while God's people were in exile at Babylon. And we read about that in Second Kings. Kitchen Table Theologian, we will link uh, Constable's commentary for you in today's show notes in case you want to dig into that further. But let's keep moving. With all of that background in mind, why is 1 Kings so important? Well, I think we see an important theological theme emerge in 1 Kings. We see that the kings who reigned under God's authority, who remained faithful to God's law, experienced God's blessings, that those kings who deviated from the law, they experienced curses. Things went bad for them. It's the same old story. You remain faithful to God and be obedient to him. Blessings come your way. You go away from God. You're disobedient to him. You're going to experience anything but blessings. And that's what we see with these kings. First Kings, the book, also reveals Solomon's relationship 
with Yahweh or the Lord God. And we read a lot, there's a lot of emphasis on Solomon's divinely given uh, wisdom and his divinely given wealth. We read Solomon's reputation reached far beyond Israel's borders, all the way to modern-day Yemen, which was likely the home of the Queen of Sheba. Now, we read about her in chapter 10. And the interaction between Sheba and Solomon is legendary. Also, Solomon's numerous marriages, I mean, a lot of marriages. He had an extensive harem or harem, wherever you're from and how you pronounce that. That's He's very famous or infamous for that, depending on your worldview, I suppose. But all of that led to his wandering faith in later years. Solomon, though, to his credit, however, he built the temple in Jerusalem, which was God's permanent dwelling place among his people. Lastly, back to the question, why is it so important? We also are introduced to the prophet Elijah in this book. And Elijah pronounced God's judgment on this evil northern king, a guy named Ahab. And in addition to performing other miracles, Elijah won a dramatic confrontation with false prophets on Mount Carmel. That's in chapter 18. And that that really is a story no Hollywood or Bollywood movie could ever (laughs) do justice. It's so many interesting people in this book of 1 Kings. Solomon, like you said, is a fascinating person. There's so many conflicting characteristics there, I think. He's made some questionable life choices, maybe, but still had a relationship with the Lord. God still blessed him, gave him wisdom, allowed him to build the temple. Also, the story of Elijah is just one that I love. I did a deep dive study into him last year. Uh, It was a Beth Moore Bible study on Elijah and his whole story and just so much for us that we can all learn about in regards to faith and how God works everything in his timing. So interesting. Lots of good things in that book. You mentioned a moment ago also the theological theme, blessing or curse upon a king based on whether he adhered to God's law or not. So that was one theme. What are some other theological themes that we can take away from this book? Well, as we might imagine, a book of this length has numerous theological themes contained within. So let's look at one or two of those that run throughout the book. First of all, we see there's always hope for the people of God. That 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 runs throughout the book. And unless it is a merely prolonged, I told you so, the very existence of the book of Kings suggests there was hope for the future of the people despite their desperate situation in exile. They are cast into exile as you read through these books. This exile came about because they were defeated by the Babylonians and they entered what we refer to as the Babylonian captivity. And that's an especially uh, dark period in Israel's history. But one theological theme, there's always hope for God's people. If we can take just a second to go off topic, I want to ask a question. You mentioned earlier the glory days of Israel. Now you said this is an especially dark period in Mm -hmm. their history. How dark was this time period? Sometimes we hear a phrase like, Babylonian captivity, and we just sort of move right on past it without understanding anything about that. So could you maybe give us just a quick summary of what that really looked like for the Hebrews? 
Sure. Um, Jehoiachin was one of Judah's kings, so a southern king of God's people, right? So three months into his reign, he surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is probably a name many of us recognize. Jerusalem had been under siege, and they re- realized a hey, resistance is futile. We're we're defeated. So to paint a picture, of the surrender, we see that Judas king Jehoiachin, with all the royal household and his court, surrendered. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia describes this as follows. They say this: He was carried prisoner to Babylon and with him 10,000 captives, comprising all the better and sturdier element of the people, from princes to craftsmen, leaving only the poorer sort to constitute the body of the nation under his successor Zedekiah. With the prisoners were carried away also the most valuable treasures of the temple and the royal palace, and Jehoiachin was imprisoned for 37 years. So back to the theological theme, the, the portrayals of Israel and Judah's past kings would serve as lessons from which they could learn. The emphasis on repentance and forgiveness throughout, but especially in Solomon's great dedicatory prayer, he prayed this incredible prayer at the dedication of the temple in chapter 8, that, that would have been an especially attractive avenue of hope. And decisive in this regard is the hopeful conclusion found in the release and elevation of Jehoiachin. So, and that's in the very last chapter of the book. So, after 37 years, he was released from prison? Well, yes and no. He was released from prison, but he stayed in Babylon. And there was a power change in Babylon. And the new king. His name was Evil Merodach. I mean, you know, such a name. It begins E-V-I-L, Evil Merodach. He looked upon Jehoiachin, or Jehoiachin, I think is how you pronounce it, with favor. And in addition to our Bible records, there's strong archaeological evidence of his reign. About 30 tablets were discovered many years ago, and when all read, tell us that he, this guy reigned for about two and a half years. They tell us he conducted his government in an illegal and an improper manner. He was killed by his sister's brother, so she was likely a half-sister. That guy then assumed the throne. But before he was assassinated, old, well, I'll just call him evil, uh, evil released Jehoiachin from prison. And we read, he fitted him with new clothing. He seated him above all the other captive kings. Uh, you know, formerly captured kings who were living in Babylon also. And he was allowed to eat at the king's table all the days of his life. He also gave Jehoiachin a regular allowance for him to live on. So you can see maybe why Jehoiachin didn't go back to Judah. He stayed in Babylon. And and that's where First Kings ends. That is so interesting. And it's my fault I asked the question and got us way off topic there. So let's come back around. Uh, maybe let's see. We probably have time for one more theological theme from First Kings. Well, Dr. Constable, who we quoted earlier, 
also tells us that First Kings was written to record, but more important, to teach the lessons of history. And as with other historical books in the Old Testament, the history recorded here was meant to preserve not just important events, but spiritual truths learned through those events. And in the book of First, the, uh, the books of First and Second Kings, each king is evaluated, and we read this line by his reaction toward his covenantal responsibility to the law of the Lord. So that was the acid test, Doctor Constable says, of whether the king did evil or whether he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. So, kitchen table theologian, as you read First Kings, you'll notice scathing rebukes of some kings, reports not typically recorded by purely historical writers. In addition to the kings, the prophets figure heavily in this book. They are God's spokesmen proclaiming his word to mostly hard-hearted rulers. It's, It's through the prophet's eyes, always connecting the nation's fortune with its king's faithfulness or their lack thereof, that we learn the history of Israel and and Judah. With all of that background of history, of theology, maybe, especially with Old Testament books, I think this is even maybe more important for us to take just a second. Let's see what applications from all of this we can make to our lives today. Yeah, this all ties in with the theological theme of blessing and curse and there's judgment based on whether we whether or not we adhere to God's law or for us today the holy scripture. So it's always good to ask with anything in scripture, how do I apply this? So let's consider Solomon again for a, a moment. Again, known as the wisest man of his day, perhaps even in all recorded human history, besides Jesus himself, he was arguably the wealthiest man of his time. Uh, He enjoyed God's favor in many ways, yet his legacy is tarnished by the faithlessness he displayed in his later years. He started well, he did not end well. In direct contradiction to God's command for a king not to multiply wives, which is what Deuteronomy says, Solomon married many women, and many of those were foreign women. So, Tiff, just please read 1 Kings 11, 4 for us. Sure. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So I'll just end with this. Solomon began in his older years to rely on his hundreds of wives, his fortune, his military might, his political alliances for success in life instead of remaining true to the God who gave all of those blessings to him. And he focused on the gifts, and he started to forget about the giver. And application for you and I, how often do we do the same thing? So kitchen table theologian, are there any direct commands from God you are ignoring? Or you've, you've fallen away a little bit. You've allowed some of the, the things of the world, the materialism, the cares, whatever, even some relationships to allow you, using those excuses to allow you to drift away from the Lord. So I would just challenge us all today, take some time to recall the blessings in your life and then thank the Lord for them. I mean, if you put 
good clothes on today, thank God for that. If you had some good meals today, thank God for that. If you're breathing, thank God for that. You know, we thank him for those things. And rely on him. I think the lesson is rely on him, not our possessions, not our position. And he, you know, let's just live our lives recognizing he is our source of strength and significance. There we have it. Thanks so much again for listening to Kitchen Table Theology. Take just a moment, if you would, to rate and review this podcast, especially on Spotify and iTunes. It really helps new listeners find the show. And we want to spread the Kitchen Table Theology love. Don't forget, you can check out today's episode notes as well. As always, we want to say thanks to our spiritual home, Low Country Community Church here in Bluffton, South Carolina, for making this podcast possible. You can head over to jeffcranston.com for more information about Dad, a.k.a. Dr. Cranston, his books, sermons, leadership notes, and blog posts. Lord willing, we will be back next week with another episode, and we will dive into the New Testament letter to the Philippians. So there it is. Now go deeper. And until next time, always remember that the real power of theology is not only knowing it, but applying it. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Theology Podcast with Pastor Jeff Cranston. Join us next time for more insights into biblical truth. If you'd like to know more on today's topic, please check out our show notes. If you have a question from today's podcast, kindly email us at pastorjeff at lowcountrycc.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you consider leaving a rating and review? We deeply appreciate your help in getting the word out. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or in your favorite podcasting app to continue this journey with us as we learn about and apply God's word to our lives. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time here at Kitchen Table Theology.